hope everybody's doing well. Welcome to the February installment of the Orthopedic Trauma Journal Club sponsored by AO. Today, uh, we're going to be focusing on our second installment of pelvic ring injuries. Uh, tonight, uh, Adam Lee, Arun, and Asia, and I will be moderating this journal club. And we're, we're excited to have uh, three awesome faculty with us tonight. Dr. Stephen Sims from Atrium Health in Charlotte, North Carolina, Dr. Paul, Paul Tornetta from Boston University, and Dr. Rahul Vedia from Detroit Medical Center. Thank you all for participating. Uh, these are our disclosures, none that are relevant for today's talk. And uh, CME credit will be available for this uh, for participating in this journal club. Uh, there will be a survey that pops up at the end of the Zoom session, so uh, look for that at the end. Uh, tonight's learning objectives, uh, first, uh, to better understand which pelvic ring fracture patterns are at higher risk for displacement. Uh, number two is to counsel patients that immediate weight bearing is safe and an acceptable treatment for minimally displaced lateral compression sacral fractures. And number three is to understand the technique for treatment of unstable pelvic ring fractures with an internal anterior ex uh, fixator. Uh, so we're doing a brief introduction, and then we're going to go through three uh, separate interviews with uh, Dr. Sims, Dr. Tornetta, and Dr. Vedia uh, regarding their landmark articles. And then we will open up the session to, um, to questions and from the audience and uh, ask our panel. And then we'll have a quick uh, uh, wrap up. So please have your, um, uh, your microphones actually have already been muted and your videos are turned off. But in your bottom corner of your screen, please use the Q&A box um, and feel free to uh, type in any questions that you have uh, throughout the videos or um, throughout. And we'll, um, we'll keep track of these and uh, present them to the faculty during the uh, question and answer session. Uh, so the three articles that we're going to be presenting today, the first article from Dr. Sims is uh, OTA highlight paper. Uh, predicting future displacement of non-operatively managed lateral compression sacral fractures. Can it be done? And our second article is uh, the Boval Award paper uh, from the 2009 OTA annual meeting from Dr. Tornetta, which is non-operative immediate weight bearing of minimally displaced lateral compression sacral fractures does not result in displacement. And then our last article for tonight is from Dr. Vedia. Uh, treatment of unstable pelvic ring injuries with an internal anterior fixator and posterior fixation initial clinical series. I have the opportunity to uh, discuss uh, an OTA highlight paper with uh, Dr. Sims. Um, the article's name is Predicting Future Displacement of Non-Operatively Managed Lateral Compression Sacral Fractures. Can it be done? Thanks, Dr. Sims. Great. Thank you, Andrew. Glad, glad to be here. I want to start out with um, asking you um, to tell us a little bit about your experience and what prompted uh, you and your co-authors to perform the study. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting because this is this, the idea of this started with... Um, with Mark Riley, Mark's good friend, and Mark had uh, looked up a series of patients several years before this uh, at their hospital for people who had non-displaced pelvic fractures, mostly lateral compression injuries, and uh, had reported that uh, they didn't displace and that uh, 
that we could probably allow these people to begin early weight bearing and that they didn't need surgery. Um, you have to kind of remember the point we were in time back then, which was there was a perception that there were kind of two schools, I think, at the time. Maybe there was a group of people that were putting percutaneous fixation in a large number of pelvic ring injuries. Um, and there was a group of people who operated mostly just on displaced fractures, mostly with open reductions because they felt like they needed to be reduced to, because they were displaced injuries and then fixations, either percutaneously or open fixation. So that's kind of where we were in time. And uh, so Mark had looked this, had presented this uh, several times and I had heard him present it and then he'd never published it. And uh, so several years later, one of our fellows, Brandon Bruce at the time was here. And uh, uh, I talked to Mark a little bit and said, we need to publish this or get some information out uh, about what that actually shows. My perception was that there was some of these people were displacing. I was having people come back that didn't look very good and I wasn't very happy with their outcomes. So Brandon uh, looked up our series and I talked with Mark and he was able to incorporate some of Mark's patients as well over the time period that you saw there in the, in the paper. And uh, we, we got a fairly good series of people to, to report on with minimally to non-displaced lateral compression fractures with the, and really were able to report sort of what a natural history was of non-operative treatment of those fractures and what happened with those patients, which uh, turned out to be, I think, a very interesting paper. If you wouldn't mind kind of give, providing a brief summary of uh, the results that you all found in your paper, that would be great. Yeah, so I think there are a couple of things that were interesting that came out of the paper. Uh, first is sort of a method for measuring displacement. Um, and, and we kind of had to, we kind of had to go through that and, um, and kind of uh, morph some ideas into it. Uh, we didn't invent any of this, obviously, this was all being done, but nobody was really using any kind of technique to measure displacements when they talked about displacements in their papers. So we, uh, we looked at this, uh, at the height you know, from a plumb line drawn on the inlet and outlet and the AP radiograph. Uh, and then a 90 degree angle and measured the heights at the uh, iliac crest, the sourceal and the ischial tuberosities on all three views. We measured the distance from the uh, femoral head to the midline to give us an idea about rotation. And then we used this oblique um, uh, measurement, which actually came out of the OBGYN literature uh, to get an idea of sort of a summation of displacements. Uh, and, and, and while we didn't really have a number for what's significant displacement, we did have the people we call displaced had uh, significantly more when you added it together. Additionally, they all had at least uh, two measurements that were 10 millimeters displaced before we called them displaced. So uh, there's been some modifications to these things that I think have improved it. Um, but I think that the general idea of using this as a technique in, in subsequent papers has been uh, has, has proven to be of some use. Uh, both the oblique measurement done on the uh, inlet view of the greatest displacement as well as these uh, these other measurements that people have commonly been doing before us as well. Yeah, and Dr. Sims, if I'm not mistaken, the most of the displacement um, was uh, probably found on the inlet view, is that correct? Uh, uh, for the most part, yeah. I mean, I think uh, certainly for these rotational displacements, that seemed to be the place you can see them the best. Um, so if you want to go to that table, we can talk a little bit about the results the first table. And, and again, I think that while some of this may seem common sense to people now, I think this was, again, this was probably, this series was, uh, I think we looked up 
patients up through about 2009. So this was published in about 2011. Uh, we weren't, we're just starting to the idea of considering stress x-rays and, um, and just trying to uh, really discern a little better of who should be getting uh, surgery and who should not be getting surgery. But a couple of key things that we found, one was that um, if you had an incomplete sacral fracture, meaning those buccal type fractures that we see uh, from lateral compression, the chances of displacement were extremely low, such that if you had a, uh, we, the group that I think we could say probably is gonna do okay without surgery, um, is gonna be that group that has either a unilateral or, a, or no ramus fracture in the front and a buccal fracture in the back. And we had none of those people displaced. So I think we felt fairly confident that you can uh, probably uh, x-ray those people later and not be quite as concerned. Um, additionally, what we found was that um, if you have bilateral rami fractures and a complete sacral fracture, you have about a two-thirds chance of displacing, having significant displacement over time. So I think those are kind of the two extremes would be a complete sacral fracture and bilateral rami fractures uh, versus an incomplete sacral fracture and a unilateral fracture. Uh, now, unfortunately, that leaves a lot of gray area, and I think that's where, again, um, there's been a lot of follow-up stuff to this to help help uh, to better uh, define who might need surgery. But uh, more importantly, I think this really just kind of introduced the topic. I think at the time, again, your choices were to leave them alone or to operate on a lot of them. But I think this kind of brought to light uh, uh, the idea that there is a, uh, a lot of different variation in lateral compression injuries um, and the idea that some of these are going to displace and some of these may do better with surgery and some of them may do extremely well without surgery. Uh, and people, I think over the last 12 years, there's been multiple articles written on trying to decide who needs surgery and who doesn't. Um, and I, I don't know that we've ever really solved this question, but I think this helps shed some light on it. What are some limitations from the study that you guys performed? There's a big gray area in there. You know, there's a, well, we can sort of say there's two extremes that may make you feel comfortable deciding on a treatment. Um, the majority of people probably fall somewhere in the middle in there, you know, where they either have uh, bilateral rami or have a complete sacral fracture, but maybe unilateral rami fractures. And, um, and so it doesn't really solve the question. I think it just helps shed some light on it and give us one more piece of information to help us make a decision. What are your personal thoughts on the, the gray area? And then what kind of process do you go through and trying to decide on uh, whether those patients need surgical treatment or non-operative treatment? But personally, I, you know, I think uh, those patients that I have concerns about, um, I use this information. Um, and then, um, unfortunately, there is no real algorithm. I think you have to be a doctor then. And that involves um, seeing the patient. You know, what are the patient's demands? Uh, what is their general health? What are their comorbid conditions? What are their expected outcomes? Um, what, are, what are their expectations? Um, so I think when you factor all those things together, this is a, additional information. And I think for those people that are questionable in that gray area, then, uh, um, then I, I tend to be a little bit more aggressive and, and just plan to go ahead and do something surgically in those people. I think it's very reasonable to do a uh, exam under anesthesia prior to doing that. But, um, and some people will use that as their decision tree. For me, it's, I don't think it's, it really has a big impact on what I do. I, I usually do that as additional information. I'm rarely surprised by the outcome of the exam under anesthesia, and it rarely uh, changes what I was planning to do surgically. 
want to thank you and also your co-authors. Yeah, special thanks to, to Brandon Bruce, who did most of the legwork for it while he was a fellow here in Charlotte, and to, to Mark for his insights as well. And uh, the only problem with Brandon had with this paper was he forgot how to spell my name at the beginning. So, so in, in my multiple rewrites of this paper, I never really looked at the, uh, at the opening <laughs> where he spelled my name, which I spell with a PH, not a B. But, <laughs> but well, everything else he did a great job with. Well, thanks a lot for your time, Dr. Sims. Sure, thank you. I'd like to thank Dr. Tornetta for joining us today to talk about his paper regarding the non-operative immediate weight-bearing of minimally displaced LC sacral fractures. If you would tell us, please, what prompted the study? That is, what was going on when when you were like, hey, th this this needs to be this needs to be said. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I was I was trained sort of in the classic Lauderdale framework and you know I did work with Joel Matta who uh, who really shaped my understanding of, of the pelvis and acetabulum. The teaching then uh, in that school of thought was that uh, you rarely had to fix anything that didn't require a reduction and if something was not displaced then fixation was really not necessary and a lot of Joel's work supported that. So you know this is the way that I've always practiced. I've always practiced to avoid surgery unless it's absolutely necessary. I probably say I'm one of the more conservative surgeons in the country. Um, and, and our method of, of taking care of minimally displaced LC fractures, and you know, you can define it any way you want. We said less than a centimeter displacement, but basically a lateral compression injury that had some impaction. Uh, and we, we just observed those. And, and the purpose of this paper was really to look at that practice to decide uh, whether it was necessary to get any x-rays. In other words, did these things shift over time or not? Uh, with this management protocol. Um, you know, we were pretty clear that in the end, everything looked all right, but we were thinking that we're wasting a lot of time keeping someone in the hospital until they mobilize uh, and some other things. It actually, at that time, didn't dawn on me that people would be as overly aggressive as they have turned out to be, uh, and that things that clearly didn't require surgery would be getting them. Uh, so this sort of serves as a secondary purpose now to say, if you let them walk, they do okay, and they don't shift. And then you, you kind of got into the study design, uh, just uh, to confirm it was you had been doing this practice based on your teaching and your gestalt. Yeah, this is basically just all comers. This is, you know, this is my practice since 1993. So we, we had gotten to a point where people were starting to operate a little bit too much. And we got to a point where people were justifying surgery on potential for displacement, but basically it was that these are stable injuries. They should be left alone. Surgery is a risk that's not worth taking. And the idea was to show that. And the main results? We showed that. Of the 118, uh, there was only one that displaced significantly and wasn't able to mobilize secondary to pain. Right. And, and that was interesting because that was a, a central fracture. So that was a little bit of a different injury than, than the rest. Um, so it's, it's a little bit, you know, maybe, maybe not an LC. And then briefly to discuss the, the weaknesses and, and maybe parlay that into how you do that differently or what you're doing differently now. Well, I think, I think the, the, the main weakness is that this is a, it's a single surgeon decision tree, right? So there were during this time frame, patients who received operative management for displaced sacral fractures. You know, it's a much smaller percentage than I think you see in most places now. 
um, you know, but I didn't not operate on everybody. And I think that, you know, anytime, anytime you're making decisions like this, I, uh, you know, you try to use some scientific methods, but, you know, we don't classify these the same way as each other. There's clearly different types of sacral injuries. You're essentially looking at my judgment and, you know, at that time it was pretty good. Maybe I'm much worse than that now. So we don't know. The reproducibility of the radiographs. I don't know if you guys ran into that at all. We, we sort of looked at it with this methodology it was pretty good, but you have to have a good AP. When we validated it, it's, it's good, but not great, right? So if you, were to, if you were to measure this, it's going to be two or three millimeters on a plane film that's measurement error. But I think that that works because if I measure it at one and you measure it at four, if the patient heals at one or four displaced, that's a non-issue, right? We know that. Those patients do great. So, so basically, I think that the amount of measurement error that's taken into account when you look at this is a rationally accepted one because it's probably the clinically relevant number that, that is above that. So that doesn't really concern me very much. So you already alluded to it in some previous comments. I wouldn't guess your practice changed since this was your practice and it was kind of confirmatory in that way. But where did you take it as, as kind of, it seemed like there was a shift from mostly non-operative as the technology and the technique became easier for percutaneous or more widely used, I guess, for percutaneous fixation. Uh, this kind yeah. of heard and kind of where we question. going from here. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question, Adam. So I, I would say that philosophically, I haven't changed at all. My practice is identical to the way it was then. We don't operate on pretty much everything, right? So if I'm operating, it's because there's displacement that is uh, not consistent with a good outcome that requires a reduction. So if I fix something, it's to maintain a reduction, not to prevent displacement. That hasn't changed. Now, that, that discrepancy of, of sort of the people who are in the school that believes let it heal on its own and the people that, who believe that everything should get a screw, you know, there's a big difference. So we did do a, a prospective OTA-funded study, but basically it was uh, 16 centers looking only at unilateral sacral fracture. So it wasn't all lateral compression, but about 80% with lateral compression, as you'd expect. So if you take the group that was uh, less than five millimeters displaced, so that would be what we consider to be the undisplaced groups. Now, we looked at the ones that were operated versus not. Uh, neither group displaced over time. There's no difference, no appreciable difference in pain or dysfunction over time if you take these and fix them or if you don't. So I think that operating on these uh, relatively undisplaced uh, unilateral sacral fractures is essentially an unnecessary risk and cost that doesn't help anybody. And any kind of parting words aside, that was a great summation of one, what you found, and two, what's, what's forthcoming in this rather controversial topic. I think the one area that we still need to work on, and the thing that is not clear is how to use a stress examination. People with experience, uh, I'll quote a few people like myself, Heather Valier, Brian Mullis, and others, we, we don't use stress exams. And you know, we run a fellows course every year. Not a single person routinely used stress exams in that group. And that's because we know what, what it looks like, right? So when it looks like what you see here, where it looks a little bit displaced, you know it's not going to move a lot. And, and doing a stress exam is really unclear because the people who are using it are operating on it based on completely and totally arbitrary mar monikers, right? So 
Claude Saji, you know, really tried to put some science to it. And I give Claude a lot of credit because he's always thinking about these things just the way I am. He said, well, let's look at it scientifically. Let's do all of these views. I think it was 16 views, right? And then we'll say, well, if it shifts a centimeter, we're going we're gonna to fix the front. If it shifts two, we're going to fix the front and the back. I was with them all the way until let's fix for no reason, right? So that study would have been perfect if those stress exams were done and then a natural history was done to say what actually happened to the patients. Because we don't know right now that those amounts of displacement that, that we know existed at the time of injury. I mean, it's like taking a humerus fracture in a fracture cuff and taking it out and then saying, oh, look, it moves 30 degrees. We better fix it. It's very clear that these things move or they wouldn't have shearing injuries in their anterior ring. So the real question I have is what motion leads to a bad outcome, right, if you're doing stress exams? So most of us don't do those. And I, you couldn't pay me enough to bring a patient to the OR, take a risk of anesthesia, do a stress exam with radiography, incur the cost, and then watch the patient. Like that needs to be a funded study. That, that's something that we're probably going to work on next because I think that that needs... Uh, a natural history study rather than uh, an arbitrary cutoff and operate study. So I think that's the next thing we need to figure out because none of those were really the push pulls that, that Bruce Browner did to look for vertical instability. This is rotational instability that is present in every lateral compression injury or it wouldn't have broken. So I think that's the next step. That's our next thing we need to figure out. Thank you. I think this will engage the viewership for sure. Cool. So uh, I've got Dr. Rovedia, uh, who's going to speak to us about uh, his landmark article on the anterior internal fixator. So Dr. Rovedia, uh, welcome. Thank you. So uh, tell us, you know, uh, how did you sort of go about developing the study, this product? How, how did you come upon this idea? Well, you know, at the time, uh, I was, a, I had just, uh, I'd moved to the United States and I had started to deal with some pretty big patients, uh, more, bigger than what I was used to in Canada. And we used to put anterior, anterior fixators on people's pelvises and, uh, they just didn't do the trick. And, uh, we had, uh, you know, a lot of people had done some preliminary work on, on, uh, the Hanover frame and. Uh, the guys from Toronto uh, about uh, increased stability with supraacetabular pins. And uh, I had done a spine fellowship in uh, Vancouver and a trauma fellowship. So I was pretty uh, used to using pedicle screws. And I think the last thing, I had worked with a guy named Bob Meek, who's a pretty famous orthopedic surgeon. And he was trying to fix pelvises by putting a, like a snake tool uh, through the pelvic uh, anterior column and all the way around the pelvis. And he's actually got a product that is coming out that does that, or has already come out. And uh, we, uh, we were trying to find a way not to have the external fixator outside the skin because these guys were so, uh, so big. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we were, we had, I had been on a, a beach in Europe and I saw all these guys wearing bikinis and uh, they were kind of big and you could still see that the guys could wear bikinis. So I, I was kind of fascinated by the fact that there was an area that uh, the bikini fit and the belly fit over. 
And so we, uh, we thought we could find a place over the pelvis where there was an area that you could put a bar under the skin and, uh, and not interfere with the underlying structures you consider stan. Okay. So uh, we kind of came up with this idea and we had a bunch of really big guys who were my uh, scrub techs. I call them my offensive line. And uh, they uh, made them wear bikini bathing suits and, and belts. And we had them sit and stand and took pictures of them. And and uh, it looked like there was a place that we could put a bar. And we call this the bikini area. I mean, thank God that these guys would actually do this for me. It was a little creepy, but they did it. And uh, we uh, we then did a, a, an anatomic study with some cadavers and uh, figured there was an area that we could put this in. So. Uh, we gave it a shot on someone really big that we had trouble with uh, with the X-Fix, and uh, it turned out it was pretty good. So uh, we we use it quite a bit. So, uh, you know, we, we use it for uh, closing down the front in a, in a B or C-type pelvic fracture. And uh, I think, you know, we, we've tried it in things like ramus fractures and in symphyseal fractures. And you know, in the saddle type fractures, uh, the, the the things that we you know we've written a paper where we've shown that you know fixing the symphysis with a plate is an easy thing to do, and is probably a better reduction than an infix. Uh, but we've uh, but in a really big person or someone with a bladder injury or urethral injury, uh, we've used an infix in uh, in symphyseal injuries too, uh, just to avoid having plates contact with the bladder or the urethra. Um, and uh, it sort of turned out okay. Okay. So, uh, you know, you said type uh, B and C injuries, um, maybe patients not amenable to Raymi uh, screws. Those... Well, I think Raymi screws is a good option as well. I think one of the, one of the things that the Infix can help you with is help you with a reduction where the Raymi screws, you have to reduce it and then put it in the Raymi screw. So uh, we use Ramus screws as well, a uh, fair amount. And, uh, uh, you know, what uh, we may do in a bigger person is we would use an infix or because we think it, in our hands anyway, we're a little quicker about doing it. The, the bad thing is we have to take them out. So, you know, there is an advantage of putting internal fixation and a Ramus screw is a good option as an alternative. Okay. Uh, likewise, you know, would you, you know, you mentioned some of the limitations being hemodynamically unstable patients, um, maybe patients that have an infection or any concerning skin in that region, but what are your limitations of, you know, when would you not consider using this device? Anytime where you're under stress or the patient's under stress and you may not be able to get the equipment or it's a little more fidgety than putting on an X-Fix, I, I think you can't compromise the timing for patient care. So we, we often put on an X-Fix uh, when we have to in an acute hemodynamic unstable patient, and we may replace it with an infix later or Ramus screws. So I think you have to have a controlled environment, you have to have the equipment, and you have to be comfortable with the equipment to do this. Uh, and pretty much most trauma surgeons are pretty facile with an X-Fix. So, you know, that, that's probably the go-to thing in a, in a stressful situation. You know, Chip Brown has shown that uh, that maybe just a binder, a sheet, 
in the stressful situation is a great idea. We do that. Pelvic ring instability are still left unanswered. This is kind of a very weight bearing after fixation. Uh, so uh, the biggest problem I think with pelvic fixation is we still don't have a device uh, for an unstable pelvis that allows you to weight bear right away. Uh, you know, we've been becoming a little more aggressive with this, uh, you know, weight bearing on the uninjured side or the less injured side, allowing people to transfer, um, you know, triangular fixation for very, you know, very unstable sacrums that may actually allow you to weight bear, but we haven't seen papers where people are weight bearing right away. There's a nice paper from uh, uh, Tom Higgins that, uh, that talks about weight bearing at six weeks instead of three months. And I think many pelvic surgeons are doing that, you know, weight bearing more early than we, we used to. So I don't think we've solved the immediate weight bearing scenario like a femoral nail. Okay. Great, if our panelists don't mind turning on their video and their microphones, and then we will start with the Q&A session. And um, if there are any other questions that come up, please feel free to write them in the Q&A box and then uh, we will work on getting them addressed. Um, so I think there were some, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, you know, there were some really good questions. Uh, uh, obviously, selfishly, I have one question I really wanted to ask the three panelists. We all agree on the amount of energy transmitted and the completeness of the sacral fracture, but there's so many different ways to interpret it. Can the three panelists, guest panelists, kind of just walk us through how they determine a complete sacral fracture? What, you know, what, what radiographs are you looking at? What CT views are you looking at? Um, I, I can start. So for, for our study, we actually, uh, we, we required um, that there was a perforation through the posterior border of, of the cortex of the sacrum. So that's, uh, you know, I think Claude Saji somewhere has come up with this three column idea as well, more recently where, you know, that you, you have just a buckle anterior, you have a fracture that maybe exits uh, in the mid portion, um, maybe into the SI joint area, and then you have one that can come all the way through the back. So it, it, it may have biased our results a little bit because that probably rules out some of the, that ends up being mostly zone two sacral fractures that actually perforate all the way through the back cortex a little bit. But I think um, there is a little gray area, you're exactly right in that area where um, it is more than a buckle, it goes through, but it doesn't come all the way out through the back, but kind of exits out through the lateral portion of the sacrum. That makes it a little harder to, to, to say for sure. I did want I did want to say that uh, that I'm I'm jealous that uh, I, I don't have any kind of loyalty where people will wear bikinis in the operating room or, or anywhere near me, and I don't have that beautiful view that Paul has behind him at the beach right now. So congratulations to both of you on being <laughs> way more successful than I've ever been on on, on both of those things. Sadly, Steve, it's just it's a fake background for me. <laughs> It's a real place, but right now that's that is not where I am. I just got back from the hospital, so um, yeah. I mean, I, I I agree with what what Steve's saying, and I mean, the question is, does it matter if it's complete? And and because complete can be displaced, complete can be a crack. So you know, like 
I've seen cracks, literally just cracks with a minimal displaced, something in the front that's probably a lot, a lot more stable than something that has a fair amount of anterior impaction, shortening, and hinges in the back that, you know, that may have an undisplaced crack. So I think when you start to talk about sacral displacement, um, you know, when you see it on the x-ray and there's translation, that's something that's likely unstable, right? If there's no translation on the plain film, then, then I look at the CAT scan. And I think it, it matters what zone it's through and, you know, understanding the ligamentous attachments and not just the bony anatomy, but most of these are going to be zone two, as Steve said, I, I agree with that. <clears throat> and if they're, if they're complete in the front and, and a high degree of impaction, then you know that those displaced more in the front, right? They're all going to have a shearing injury on the inlet, which is pathognomonic of a lateral compression injury, all the way back to Burgess's article. Um, and if they're, if they're impacted a lot in the front or they recoil, so they look pretty reduced, but there's a gap in the front, that indicates just a lot of rotational instability. And then you can look at the back and decide, you know, if you scroll through the whole thing, is there any area in the back that looks really like it's hinging or is it complete in the back? And even, even a couple of millimeters translated in the back, if, if it's all the way from top to bottom, is going to give you a greater chance of instability. Now, to be fair, I still treat a lot of those without surgery. So, you know, Steve was, was probably trained very similarly to me as, as he was out with Joel for a while too. And that comes from a lot of school. And I said it during the interview, but, and he said it as well, you know, it's not a, an accident is that typically fixation is used for things that require a reduction, right? The concept of fixing something to prevent displacement is, is something that we haven't, we haven't proven is necessary. And if you look at what determines outcomes, someone asked this in the question, you know, there's no, there's no really good data on what malunions cause a problem, right? You know, what, what amount of rotation, static rotation is a problem for someone? Uh, how much flexion, and I think that's a bigger issue uh, because if they're maximally rotated, you're going to derotate them. But the ones that are the real problem, I think, are the ones that have a little flexion extension instability. And when you look at the outlet, their tuberosities are at the wrong height, because that outlet view is how you sit. And, and the sitting imbalance, if you look back at all of the data on pelvic fractures and non-op management and all the rest of it, it's not leg length discrepancy that's the issue, right? In a bony injury, you have good stability after union in the back. Leg length discrepancy is manageable. Sitting imbalance is the largest problem that people have. And, and the pain in the, in the posterior ring is actually not as much as a ligamentous injury. So I think, I think we have some work to do on, on the natural history and really being clear about that before we can say, you know, where do we go from here? I would just, I would just add that I think uh, we, we, we still do a lot of like just wait. And if they can't mobilize uh, occasionally like two or three days, we might fix something that doesn't look uh, displays too much just to help a mobile, someone mobilize. Um, and, I, and, I'm, and I'll tell you, they're, they're all going to heal. Like you said, we don't see a lot of pelvic non-unions. Uh, the ones that I worry about, if there's comminution in, this, in the sacrum, that's problematic. Uh, but the buckles or the completes, I think we just give them a chance. Um, and if they don't sit up, they can't sit up by day two or day three and they're really complaining, I think we probably are going to take them back and do something. And I don't think we do any... EUAs ever. I did, I did my first EUA uh, last week in my career. 
in, in preparation, in case someone were to, you know, you got to be prepared if you're going to walk into the lion's den, right? And <clears throat> I know a lot of these younger folks are, are trained to, you know, do a stress exam and operate if you can find any motion. Well, you know, the car gave it some motion when he hit the guy. So, you know, there's motion. Um, so we had, a, we had a patient come in that had, you know, a, an impacted sacrum and, you know, a really comminuted uh, parasyphyseal fracture on one side of the ramus. He happened to have an ankle fracture. So he ended up in the operating for his ankle fracture. So I had my residents do the stress exam and we videoed it and there was zero chance I was going to fix it or absolutely zero. And it, it moved about three or four millimeters, uh, centimeters. And, you know, we obviously did nothing and, you know, he can't walk because it's the same side as ankle. So I didn't get him walking right away, but we did monitor his pain score. So his maximum pain score, even after me, you know, having the residents push as hard as they could on it, his maximum pain score was four. And underneath that, it said ankle, right? And, and he, had, he had nothing greater than a four uh, and he had mild discomfort in his pelvis. He got up, I saw him, he was a week out uh, this week when he came to clinic and he, could, he, could, he couldn't quite hold his leg up with a straight leg raise on his own, but if he helped himself, he could do it. And he said he had no pelvic pain. Right. And this is a guy who by Claude's paper would have had front and back fixation. So, you know, we, we are going to organize it and I'll, I'll open it up to everybody that's on the panel and participants. We're going to start organizing now a, a trial to look at this. Uh, that's going to look because, you know, Tom Higgins had a really nice idea because, you know, what I said in my video there was that, you know, you'd have to have a funded study to pay for OR time for patients, you know, you're not operating on, but you can get a lateral x-ray. And I thought Tom's paper at the OTA was really a good idea to get a lateral uh, shoot through x-ray of the pelvis and use that. So if we can agree on that and people are uh, committed to doing a, a high quality study, not shit study, a high quality study, <clears throat> we're gonna take all those patients, get the lateral x-ray. We're gonna come up with some criteria for displacement or early pain that would say you can drop out of the non-operative group that people can agree on. And we're gonna follow the rest and we'll see what happens. And we'll actually have an answer as to are any of these displacing over time or do any of these have a bad outcome? And I think that will, that will definitively answer some of these questions. And if they displace, does it matter? Like yeah, said. well, that's the question is how much displacement matters, right? And, and you know, I think there's probably an amount of rotational displacement that matters. People talk about 15 degrees. Um, you know, there are, there are some, some data from hip from hip preservation stuff and others that say, you know, 15 degrees is probably a bit of a problem, but you know, you don't see a lot of, I mean, the, the picture in Steve's article was, you know, was very displaced. It was very oblique. I think that patient for that deformity, I would have put a, an anterior frame or an anterior infix on that. And I think that would be a very reasonable thing to do to prevent that internal rotation deformity. But what we're really talking about is operating on the patients who are not displaced to prevent them from displacing. And that's, that's a whole different matter, right? That's a whole different matter. Yeah, and to be fair, that, that patient was not displaced initially. That patient displaced, that, that was a secondary displacement. But I, I think they're getting a biased opinion because none of us, I mean, I don't do stress exams either. I mean, I, I was trained that basically what a stress exam shows you is that you, if you push hard on a broken bone, you can make it move. And, uh, um, and, and, and what that ends up causing in the end, I guess, is debatable. Um, uh, and like I say, I have done them a few times when I was in the operating room to fix somebody just to look at it, just to see what it looked like, but I was, it didn't change my plan. Um, and sure enough, they do move quite a bit when they're unstable and displaced. And, uh, and you can, you can show that very nicely. So I, I, there are certainly people that are smart and good guys that do a lot of stress exams. I'm not bad mouthing them, but I, I, it's not something that, that I do in my practice and, uh, or, nor have I ever really done 
that very much in my practice. We treat a lot of them non-operative. This is a group, uh, I would say there were four surgeons that were contributing to this. Uh, Mark was one of them in New Jersey. I, I guess there were a couple of people in New Jersey actually, so there were probably five surgeons and then there were three at my institution as well. Um, and we had different thresholds for fixing fractures. I think some, some of these um, lateral compression injuries I, I might have fixed if I had seen that patient initially, but, uh, but I, I think the take home message is the lateral compression injuries are, as everybody's saying, uh, as we all know, are a very diverse group of injuries. It's not just an injury. Um, and it's, you have to look at what the mechanism of injury was, what the force vector was. Um, you can use their symptoms some to help you a little bit, maybe to help judge instability a little bit. You can, uh, you can uh, look at the radiographic findings, any displacement. You look at the you really delineate what the posterior injury is and really study what the anterior injury is. And with that and your experience, you'd make a decision about whether you think this is something, first of all, that's very displaced and needs surgery or something that you think is so likely to displace that uh, if you don't treat this operatively that you're gonna end up with a bad outcome. And, and, um, you see, and one of the things I think is, you know, your, your paper was really strong in, and it was it's a very similar paper to Margaret McQueen's, you know, distal radius paper. I sort of, I think they're sort of, in the same family, right? So you take patients who have a distal radius, you cast them, and then if they shift, you know, and you can figure out a percentage chance they're gonna shift. And, and the issue with the distal radius is, right, you know, we treat most of them non-operatively also. And I know you guys think I probably suck as a surgeon. I do everything without surgery, but uh, every once in a while I can actually operate, but only when they really need it. But the distal radius is the same thing. So they'll displace, but, but that doesn't mean you can't recast them. So our average is two and a half casts for a non-op distal radius. You know, they come back, they're shifted a little, you recast them, you get it back. So the question for you on your paper is you identified what, what number, what patients shifted, what percentage, what amount was the shift and what, what percentage of those healed in a position that you would consider to be unacceptable. In other words, let's say 60% of that high-end group or 68% displaced, but you know, displacement was 10 on two views. That could have been you know, a little flexion. It could have been a little internal rotation. It could have just been on the femoral head coming in a little bit, which I wouldn't deem to be very important at a centimeter. What percent of those, if you had to predict, would knowing what they ended up with would have gotten surgery in your hands? Yeah, I, I don't know that I can give a, a, a fair answer to that. I, I would just say that uh, well, <clears throat> what we call displacement was um, an, an entire diameter of a ramus, basically. So if they healed with one full diameter of the ramus displacement, that was a displaced fracture. And all of these, none of these people had significant translational. They didn't go cranial. They, they're lateral compression injuries. They internally rotated is what happened. So that the ramus is displaced in the front. Uh, and if they, again, if it was a full diameter of the ramus, we call that displaced. And then we use that, measured all the other measurements based on that. And the only downside I've seen to some of these uh, is, is there are some that won't heal. The, the ramus doesn't heal in the front if they are significantly displaced. Like that one, I think it was in the paper that they showed a picture of that. Once like that, sometimes you get a ramus non-union. And I'm sorry, go ahead. But Dr. Sims, does it matter if they heal in the back? Uh, I, I don't know that they have a lot of a, a tremendous amount of instability, but I, there, there are a lot of people with ramus non-unions that will be, continue to be symptomatic. And, and those are difficult to take care of when the patient is completely displaced like that. To come back and take care of the ramus non-union is not as simple at that point in time. So, so again, I think if, you know, if, if we were really clever, we would know 
not only who's displaced, but who was going to displace and we would be able to fix that. I don't think we're ever going to get to that point. And I think the, uh, the real take home message is if you're going to treat these ones that are equivocal non-operatively, then you need to follow those patients and, and get x-rays sometime in the near future. The ones that are clearly stable, as Paul showed, you probably don't really necessarily need to be following them so closely and getting repeat x-rays so, so regularly. So. And, and so I'll, I'll ask, there's a couple of questions from the, from the, from the attendees and some of my own in my early practice. So if you guys could walk through each of your algorithms. So say we have one of these in, indeterminate ones, it's probably stable or at least not clearly unstable based on the imaging. There's not a lot of deformity. And for Dr. Trinetta, it doesn't need a reduction. So I'm not gonna pursue fixation. How exactly are you pursuing that early intervention? That is, what, what do you determine mobilization? Is it sitting up to the edge of the bed? Is it getting bed to chair? Is it walking up and down the hallway? One, and how long do you give them to reach that endpoint? Two, and then how do you follow them subsequently? I know there's some papers out there that say post-mobilization x-rays, for example, don't really matter much, but Dr. Sims's paper showed that there was some late displacement that may have mattered. So how do you use that in context of, of your treatment algorithm for these for these patients? Can I say one thing? Yeah, so yes, at our place, if it's if you can't sit. If you can sit, it's fine. You know, you get you're sitting up, your lungs are okay, you can sit in the chair. If you can't even sit, that's a problem for us. Um, that that's just that's it. Two three days you can't even sit. That's something we're gonna probably we're probably gonna stabilize for one of these injuries. And they'll try. Our, our nurses are gonna try to get you up because they don't want you to have surgery from us. <laughs> but Adam, I think it's a great question though. I mean, it's so the question is what 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 do you do with those patients that you're treating non-operatively? And I think in you know I, my training was like Paul's, you know, and I was very proud of that training. And it was. We basically said if it was non-displaced and uh, we thought it was a stable injury, you could get those people up, they could weigh pair, you didn't, they weren't going to displace. And, uh, you know, so again, I think I was a little surprised with some of the results of our paper. Um, and I think that just shows that not everybody was doing a great job of screening through some of these injuries that, uh, that are, you know, that I think many of us would have operated on, you know, a complete sacral fracture with bilateral rami and, that probably had some comminution and maybe a slight amount of displacement in the back. And I think a lot of people would have probably operated on that guy initially. But uh, but for 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 me, I you know if they're a young patient uh, and being touched down weight bearing on the side with the sacral fracture is something that's doable for them you know, and not a big setback, I usually will make them touch down weight bearing on the side that the sacral fracture is on. If they uh, you could argue that you can make a weight bear style rating, they probably would touch down weight bear for a while and you'll. You know the old concept of they self-regulate their weight bearing, but uh, but I usually make that a little more formal for them, and and then uh, I, I do follow their X-rays. Um, I, I usually will get an X-ray at about a week, and I usually get one at about three weeks, and then I usually get one at, uh, plus or minus when I think they're healed if they're doing if they're doing okay, and I and I'll keep them touchdown weight bearing for four to six weeks. If it's a just a small buckle that looks like almost nothing, I let them weight bear is tolerated right from the start. I don't know, Paula, you're letting them all weight bear right away or? Yeah, so I mean, it, it, again, you know, so so the, the real deficit to the paper that, that Jill Souls, who she's a trauma girl now in Rochester, I mean, she was my resident when she did that paper with us, 
I mean, the real, the real deficit of that is that that's my judgment, right? That, that's me saying it's okay, right? It's not objective criteria because there were patients who had complete comminuted sacral fractures with minimal displacement that had a lot of pain that I operated on during that same time frame. It wasn't every patient who had less than that amount of displacement, it was just lateral compression. So, you know, there was an earlier question around what if you have a transverse versus a, you know, a, a, a vertical fracture in the front, what if it's commuted in the front? So if, you, if it's not a lateral compression injury, and, and I think, you know, if you look at the inlet view and it's a shearing injury of the rami, it's clearly a lateral compression injury. If it's not a lateral compression injury, it's, it's a different problem because you can have flexion extension moments and other things that are problems. So as, as you said, Steve, earlier, you've really got to evaluate the mechanism, the patient, all of the x-rays, the soft tissue windows, everything to understand what's happening in the pelvis. But if you determine it's a true lateral compression and there's no translation in the sacrum, I walk them right away. Bilateral rami, unilateral rami, it doesn't matter as long as they can get up. Now, my criteria is more if they, if they can't roll in bed on the good side. Like if they can't roll on their good side in bed, that's, that's a lot of pain. But, you know, I fix probably one, one patient like that every year or two. And, you know, I don't have the volume you have down there, Steve, and we don't, we don't see as many as a big Southern center. So, you know, it's probably a third of your volume. So that would mean if I were in your place, it'd be two a year or something like that. But it's not a lot of patients that have that much pain who have an x-ray that doesn't look terrible and, and doesn't require a reduction. So we just, we just don't seem to see it. I, I'd, I'd agree with Raul. I think that if they can sit, that's usually pretty good. And, you know, the shock trauma guys did a, did a randomized trial that basically showed the same thing as our observational trial, which is that when you take these patients and you fix them, they, they don't do better. And they, you know, they have a very short span of having a little bit less pain and that's less than two points on a VAS, which there's no orthopedic study anywhere that shows less than two points on a VAS at 10 is a clinically relevant number. And, and at, at three to six weeks, they're, they're back to the same. So if someone can suck up you know, a couple of weeks of pain and, and mobilize, then you know, they're gonna avoid risks of surgery. Yeah, two weeks, like distal radiuses, you can't move them after two weeks. <clears throat> Pelvises, they, they tend to sock down in two to three weeks. Well, I'll, I'll just make one comment. Maybe, maybe some of the difference between Paul's results and ours, or just what Paul said. Paul's are a select group of patients that, that he selected um, with lateral compression injuries. And, and ours, probably more of a natural history of what happens to just taking all comers that we're classifying as lateral compression and seeing what happens with them. And, uh, and, and if you... And I think what we showed is some of those will displace and some, some of that diverse group of injuries will displace if you treat them non-operatively. So, so if nobody's yeah. asked Raul a question, I do have a question for him because uh, I don't want you to feel left out in this whole process related to your paper. But uh, I, I know that your paper initially started out talking about using this for just for obese patients because first of all, it was hidden easily and you could there was room for it uh, even in the bikini area. And secondly, uh, the risk of a true external fixator might be higher in that group, but it, it sounds like that. And, and what I see at other centers is it, it seems like that's kind of morphed into being pretty much all patients, uh, skinny, fat, in between that, that you're treating the anterior ring on, or not you personally, but other people as well. You know, I, I, I think we use it more than other people and it's just because we do it a lot. So uh, yeah, we're doing it on skinny and, uh, and older people, and 
you know, sometimes we have uh, some young women and you can do it with two little cuts like that, that are hidden in the bikini or in the straps and they might not want a fenestiel or something like that. And, uh, you know, it's played out, you, you know, if you look at the biomechanics stuff, it's probably the same, uh, you know, it's, it, there's second surgery. So you really have to think about that and polytrauma, it often doesn't matter because you have to do a second surgery. A lot of times you, you know, you, you mix it with other cases. But yeah, we have been using it. The place where I think it really helps is when you want to do a reduction and you can use it for the reduction. And like, you know, opening up, like for an LC3, we use it for a reduction. We fix one side that's open, we distract and we fix the other side and that helps the ring. Or uh, like a lateral compression, if we are going to open it up, I think, you know, the X-Fix, nice paper from Harborview previously that we would do something like this instead of the outside. Um, that's where we'd probably use it. I would encourage you to plate synthesis. Great operation. In Steve, I've I've used his technique in uh, in thin patients. There's there's room. I had I had one girl who um, who came back at two years to have hers out. <laughs> like two <laughs> years, yeah, two years. She she migrated. She went somewhere. She came back two years later. I said, you know, and I remembered. Oh, she had a pelvic fracture. I did something for her. I couldn't remember what it was. I said, well, how you feeling? So I'm really really doing great. I said. You know, she said, do I need an x-ray? I said, well, are you feeling okay? She said, yeah, nope, I have no problems. I'm back to full function. It's just, it's just that I have this pain with sex. And, you know, I think, it, I think it's this bar. And I had completely, for, you know, she was dressed talking. I completely forgot she had an infix, right? I couldn't remember one patient from that. I knew, I knew she had a pelvic injury. And it's like, my face just went, you know, like two, two three she had like more HO than average. Uh, you know, two years she was she was she was happy and she just wanted it out of her way and she was she was thin girl. So I, I, it does work in in those patients. You got to you know you, you do have to be careful of femoral nerve and you know you, you you know there's a tight window that you're gonna make a wicked bend at the bottom. I'm sure Rowell could do that in his sleep. For me, it takes a little bit more time because I don't do it as often. But I remember that OTA. That was that was just uh, I thought that was. The most remarkable paper of that entire meeting, Raul. That was a really good pen. And the best part about it was it came right on the heels of Peter Cole trying to convince us that we should take a plate and shove it all the way inside the pelvis, all the way around blindly, and put a bunch of screws in. It was just <laughs> the juxtaposition could not have been any more amusing for me. Yeah, we're just saying. I think the lineup at that OTA was exactly the lineup we have right now. I think our paper, then your paper, then Raul's paper. It was uh, in about 2000 and what, what do we say, nine or something like that. Um, well, also, there was some talk about being able to maybe control the posterior ring a little bit better because if you use the pedicle screw sort of concept that uh, it's locked to the pin uh, and it's a big pin that you might be able to control the posterior ring a little bit. Is, is so that uh, been something you've used or? So there's, so, you know, there's different pedicle screws. And so I, yeah, you know, I've, I've got like my, uh, like the, uh, you know, Saturday night one and my Sunday morning one and my Monday, you know, but I have, so I have like a bit of a formula and my, the guys I work with, they're like, they use one kind. So if I have someone that's really big, uh, I'll use a uh, Shan's pin spinal fixator, which has 150 millimeter pins. So I can go all the way to the back and they can be really long and I won't use a, And if you're, if you got a really bad APC injury, then a simple polyaxial screw sometimes slides. So you got to put little, you got to put little clamps on the side of it. They have those little C clamps. You might want to do that. Um, and then uh, if it's a little old lady, uh, which I very rarely do, but I had to do one or two in the last couple of years, 
you have to really be careful with the caps that are like uh, that are uh, have fine edges. So you got to be a little careful with that. And you want to have some kind of pedicle screw that has a cap that's round because they really get irritated. Uh, so that, that you know, I, there's no there's no particular one. I think you have to futz with it. I think the thing is you have to make sure your your implants are long, 110, 120, and then seven eight millimeters. And uh, if you if you really have a really big guy, you're going to need a shans pin. And so there's one system that does that. It's USS Fracture. It's a really old system. It's like from 19. It's like the Walter Dick Fixator, which was from like 70s or something. But that works really well. Um, so if, if the moderators don't mind, I'll ask you one more question. It's uh, no, please. So um, yeah, um, the uh, have you used it in the posterior ring? So I I, I have used this technique uh, only a couple of times, but I used it in the posterior ring one of those times. And instead of a tension band plate, I basic, I did an open reduction with two incisions on both sides, just like we do for tension band plating. And, but I used a, uh, I used pedicle screws and put them from the posterior superior spine down that uh, sciatic buttress, and then put a little bar across the back to, to hold the reduction. And ha have you done that some or a lot or? So yeah, so the good thing, you can do that percutaneously too. So we started doing that and then we did a biomechanics study. And if you have an SI joint and you squeeze that with SI screws, that's great. And this sucks. So uh, if you mix it, like say you've got something where you can only put in one SI screw and you don't have stability, uh, then having a posterior infix plus an SI screw is a good idea, but by itself isn't great. Uh, and we, we, we were trying to do it a little bit for comminuted sacral fractures with an SI screw and a posterior infix. We used to call it a ring fix. But then triangular, we did a biomechanics study and the triangular fixation is so much better than that. So I would tell you if you have to, like we use it in tumors sometimes. I use a ring in tumors where there's no bone in the sacrum while you do that. And if you want to do that posterior construct, you want a little bit extra stability, add a third screw into this into the sacral body so you'll have two on the outside and you'll have a third one that goes right into the sacral body that'll give you a little bit more stability but if i have a choice for a for a si joint it's it's always going to be si screws or transsacral screws if i have a if i have a comminuted sacrum it's going to be triangular fixation with a with a si screw and if it's a tumor or someone really osteoporotic then i might use then I might use that posterior uh, ring fix thing. We did a biomechanics that I think is published in uh, International Orthopedics a while ago. That uh, so we kind of stay away from it unless we really need it. Great. And one of the questions from the viewership was kind of alluding to your protocol for removal of the infix. Since we're on that on that topic, it's. I'm sure somewhat injury dependent, but is it a always remove or you have some patients out there like Dr. Cornetta's that are, that are, that are lost to follow up and, and are probably wandering around out there with, with the bar and not having issues. We've had some that just don't want the second surgery and they're fine. We just leave it in. I had one lady that had it in and then she delivered, she got pregnant and delivered two babies with it. And I was just shocked. I went over to the hospital, like, she, she came in, I did the surgery, never saw her again. Someone told me, hey, this patient's over at the women's hospital. I cruised over there to find her. She already had the baby and left. And then the second time she came for the second baby, 
I, I caught her and I said, listen, this state is a no fault auto state. You have health insurance. Like the auto insurance is going to pay for everything you have, including any disability. And then she came back and I removed it at like two and a half years. But, but uh, yeah, I mean, some people, I could tell you even weirder stories, but I think I can't say it on, t on, on this. Uh, another question that was asked by um, some of the attendees, uh, Dr. Frayne asked, uh, you know, anecdotally, just from your guys' practice, and I think uh, this was alluded to, um, are there any, any of the radiographic measurements uh, that determine displacement? Have you noticed that they correlate to patients clinically? And this might have something to do with Dr. Tornetta's idea of doing a study, but if you guys had a gestalt, you guys mentioned, you know, sitting, the ischial tuberosity height, but could you, could you tell us what you guys think about that? I mean, that, that information's out there in, in the old papers, you know, about what, what problems occur with pelvic malunion. So I think, you know, Steve's, Steve's paper, that, that one example was probably someone who, you know, lied on their side a lot. Like, you're not going to get that lateral compression internal displacement by lying down on your back. And maybe someone has slept on their side and shifted over. And, and you know, those are clearly problems. So, I think when you see, you know, when you see that overriding of three, four centimeters in the front and a real obliquity on the inlet view, to me, those are ones that, you know, that get a reduction. I don't, I don't leave those ones alone. I, I put an infix or an X-fix on them. I don't think you need to fix the back. I think that's, that's not necessary for the most part. And I do think that if you have about, um, you know, I, I'm going to use a, and, and this is my arbitrary cutoff of just looking at it, but somewhere around 15 millimeters of uh, ischial tuberosity height difference on the outlet view, I think I think is a bit of a problem. So I'll I'll go after that, you know. And that's a harder thing to go after because you've got to you've got to pull it down and, and extend that side, and then hold it there. So you know that's that's not the easiest thing to do, but uh, but I think that 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 gives people sitting imbalance and that's a really common problem. You know, if you're not if you're sitting crooked, it, even you would be surprised, but even the obese patients. Who have who have ischial height differences? They they still get that sitting imbalance, even though you think like they've they've got plenty of padding and it shouldn't be an issue. It's it's still really an issue for them. So I think that's those are the two things you know within the within the framework of people who don't have vertically displaced pelvises that you're going to fix anyway that that concern me. You know, I had I had a case like that. I was talking to Adam Starr, and he he did an infix, but he put one pin in the iliac crest. And the other super acetabular, and then he distracted, just like you would do with an X fix, to get that sort of reduced. And he left it in. I did that one time. I thought it was kind of a good idea. He did. Dr. Tornado, what what did you say that displacement was? On the, it cut out on my side on the on the ischial height for the threshold that you started to become concerned. About I, so I, first off, start with, I do not know the answer to the question, right? I, I don't know. This is like level zero knowledge, right? <laughs> so it's not like expert knowledge, but based on the patients who sort of come in to see me for deformity that are, that are looking to have something done, I would say around 15 millimeters is when I start to worry. Um, and, I, and I've turned a lot of those patients away because, you know, a triple osteotomy for 15 millimeters of the ischium is not an operation I really want to be doing. So like I give them the prefabricated, you know, thing to sit on that, that balances them. And there's some other ways 
to manage them that are non-operative, which of, of course, uh, being non-operative kind of guy, I use those. And most of those patients become satisfied with that, but they're not happy. So I, I, that's just a very, very shitty answer because you put me on the spot. So I'll give you a number, but you, I, I don't know that it's right. But I think your point is good though, Paul. I think that's, I mean, that is the reason that people operate on a lot of these is because nobody wants that patient in their office, right? So, so I think they're, you know, as we, as we know, they're sort of, I think the schools are merged a little bit maybe, but there used to be very, two very divergent schools of putting screws in a lot of pelvises that I think probably would have done okay without them. It really had no significant displacement, but basically fixing every pelvis fracture and people who fixed only the ones that required reductions. And uh, those schools might be merging a little bit, you know, as time goes on and we learn a little bit more and, and they're not quite as divergent as, as they once were. But but the, the fear that everybody has is that patient that comes back with a malunion is symptomatic or displaced enough where they have non-unions. And as, as we know that, uh, you know, pelvic malunions are an unpleasant thing to deal with. And uh, the, uh, the outcomes are never as good and the complication rates are very high. And the amount of time it takes off of my life to take an osteotome through the sacrum is uh, is not worth not worth it to me anymore. So, so I think that I think that that horrible fear that we have, and everybody has that one patient or sees that one X-ray, like in that paper we showed, that makes them say, "Well, I'm just going to fix everybody. Then I don't have to worry about it." But I guess if you stick a screw through a nerve root or something, then you have then then you worry about a different problem. Great. Oh, go ahead, Dr. Brady. So, you know, pelvis is heal, right? We said that, and we don't see as many malunions now because of what you, Dr. Sims just said. Um, and uh, and uh, non-unions, again, I think are, are something that's not so common. We had a meeting one time and someone asked who's treated more than five non-unions of the pelvis in a pelvic meeting, and it might have only been one person. So I also make the caveat that that more than three quarters of the patients who come to me with with malunions are post-op patients. <laughs> Just to be very very clear, it's not it's not the non-op patient. Like the ones I'm seeing are ones that were primarily their operative patients that come in with these displacements. So it's a nice idea to operate on them, but it's a better thing to reduce them first. Great. You know, I think we, there are a couple more questions about EUAs, but I think we'll hold off on those, especially since most of uh, the panel doesn't, uh, we've kind of discussed that a little bit. Um, and then there's one last question about uh, whether there's any uh, consideration for um, accepting less internal rotation or medialization in, in women of ch childbearing age. Does that play a role in to anybody's practice? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, it does. I mean, if you have if you have a you know if you have a ramus prominence in a in a woman, it's it's a bigger issue. So I, I think you know if you were going to say fifteen degrees in a male, it might be ten degrees in a woman. But it also depends on the displacement. It's not just the rotation. But you know, if when you start to see the inlet be smaller, you know that that's an issue for them if they're planning on having kids. So I do think that's a, a relevant factor. Great. Well, um, thank you for everybody's time. Adam, you want to pull up the last few slides? Certainly. And we'll we'll offer the panelists any any burning. Yeah. Last any final comments from the panelists? Comments, things things you need to say. 
who wants the final word? Yeah, I got, I've got one question for Aaron, Andrew, and Adam. Okay. Yeah. So can I share my screen or can't, I can't do it. Do I, um, can I, I can share. Uh, you I, can. You. I think you can, cause you're a moderator. So I'm going to share my screen. All right. Can you guys see this? Yep. Okay. So tell me what you would do with this. Okay. I'll go first since I'm at the top of the box. Uh, so my early practice, early, early practice, that would have been an EUA and fix. <coughs> After talking to you, talking to some others and evolving my practice a bit, my current situation is trial of life, trial of weight bearing first. Uh, that is, I'm not sure if I would get that EUA because like you guys said, I'm not sure I know what that displacement means. And is that where they're gonna end up or is that just where it's gonna, end, gonna be when you push hard on the trochanters with them asleep? Uh, sure, for me, I trained under Dr. Sims. Uh, so I gotta be careful what I say. Well, you're gonna be too I'm, smart, that's the problem. You're gonna be too freaking smart. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> I've not performed an EUA uh, on a pelvic ring, so I don't know what I would do with that. All right. Well, I've done one more than you have then. That was it. That was my <laughs> All right. I guess uh, I'll answer. Uh, so uh, I'm going to play devil's advocate. You know, I, I probably would fix it. Uh, you know, for me, EUA, you know, we're talking about displacement, preventing displacement. We routinely do EUA for ankle fractures too, right? For SCR2 versus 4. So, I mean, are we now saying that SCR, ligamentous SCR for fractures, we should just, you know, splint them in a good position and treat them non-operatively and, you know, see how they do three months out, you know? Yeah, that's what I do for the most, most stress. So stress positive SE4 gets a, a treatment choice, right? So what do you know about them? We have natural data that if you walk that patient, they subluxate. 20% will heal malunited. We know that, right? So I give patients a choice of a cast or a fixation. If they want to walk right away, they get fixed. If they don't want to walk right away, they get casted. But those are ones that come in with their mortise intact. So it's a, very, it's a good analogy. But my answer would be no. I operate on less than half of those patients. <coughs> you still want to operate on her? You still want to operate on that patient? Uh, you know, my, my gut, you know, right now, I'm uh, kind of outnumbered, but you know, like, <laughs> oh, you no, guys, dude, you can't, you guys here, I probably would. I would, I would be, no, no, stand your ground, Aaron, stand no, your no, I still would. I, I mean, what I would, would you do? I would find so, the, so he displaced, he says four centimeters. So you're a Saji disciple. Is it, he gets front and back fixation. Yeah. You, you know, you never showed the CT scan. What's, what's going on? The CT, CT scan, scan shows a little, you can see it on the inlet, but it shows a little anterior wrinkle. And, and nothing in the back. It's not complete. You can see a, a wrinkle in the front of the sacrum that you can see on that inlet view. It looked just like that. There's no surprises on the CAT scan. Yeah, I probably would. I'd probably stabilize with that much amount of displacement anteriorly. I probably would consider something in the back. Well, so why'd you even ask about the sacrum? I was just curious, you know, <laughs> you, you can't, there's so much, like we said, you know, this is, you know, there's no algorithm. It's so much uh, <coughs> doctors like, uh, you know, it's, it's seeing the patient, seeing how the patient's doing. So much information. And, and the cor corollary, and I think where I might use EUA now is for somebody who can't do the stress. <coughs> this is somebody who's in the ICU that can't mobilize or can't practice to mobilize because they're 
they're off of some other extremity injuries. And I think the EUA might be more useful in that particular situation, but we're, we're still trying to tease out what, what that information means. And Dr. Fanata is gonna have an N of one, but he's gonna have at least a natural history to see what it is that that amount of displacement can be in that person. And until we know more of that data, I think we're still left with a This is good. You guys are all going to join this study. I can tell you're all going to join this study. We need big numbers. Well, let's be fair, Paul. I mean, I think it's important to say 90% of the world would operate on that and call that a positive stress exam and would operate on that. Stress exams are done commonly, and I think, and, and that is a parasympathetic fracture with a lot of comminution in the front. That would worry me some. I mean, I think if if I had, if I I might not have done a stress X-ray on him, but I think if I saw that stress X-ray in the operating room, I'd be hard pressed not to put some kind of uh, anterior, uh, put a frame on the front or do something to stabilize the front, because I would I would not be able to sleep very well at nights after, after having seen that. That, that I take case, melatonin. I just take melatonin. <laughs> that case was in problem. the OR. I don't have any melatonin. <laughs> that case was in the OR at our place. I guarantee you that was probably in there for a femur or tibia. I, I guarantee you there, that would be fixed in the. <clears throat> yeah, no, I, th I think it would also. As in fact, it's, it's just interesting. You know, I run this pelvic breakout. You know, Steve's been a member of the panel. A lot of people have been, you know, try to get a lot of different people, but I think this is the, this is the, 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 the area we need to have. So I said, well, I've never done one, but this was perfect. Cause you know, residents showed it in the morning. We went over everything You look at the AP inlet outlet. You know, it's, it's not, it's not in an unexpected, if it healed where it was, I'd be quite happy with that position on the inlet. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it, and it was clearly a high energy injury because, you know, he had other things, but he, he had, as Steve said, a, you know, a comedy parasympathetic fracture. It's a real injury. And the sacrum was intact posteriorly. So it was like sort of the perfect case. And I, the resident's like, well, why don't you stress it? So I can tell you what it's going to do. It's going to shift all the way the fuck from here to here, right? That's how it happened. It's not a big surprise. Like it doesn't take a genius to figure that out. So since we we're going to the OR, I said, you know what? I'll, I'll do this just so I have one. So I did it. And I had, I had three female residents. One of them weighed I don't know, 76 pounds, I think she weighs something like that. It's like the tiniest resident I've ever had. So she was on one side and the other one was on the other side. And I internally rotated the legs and, you know, it, it shifted a lot. Now, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen with that patient. You know, the two week follow up is like, you know, next week. So we fixed his ankle and he came back on, I saw him on Monday. I think he was at maybe he was at 10 days on Monday and he had no pelvic pain, was, was getting around on crutches just fine, hopped right up on the table, said, How are you feeling? So my ankle's a little sore. That was it. Got no pelvic pain at all. Now, if he had a ton of pelvic pain, couldn't mobilize, right? That that might have changed my opinion. You know, Steve said you got to be a doctor. It's not about it's not about just objective data. There's patients involved. It's not it's not about the X-ray. It's about the patient. If that guy is on the floor and doesn't have the ankle fracture or the pelvis fracture, he's probably not. Oh, <clears throat> well, he would have been weight bearing is tolerated. Yeah, he would have gotten if he didn't have an ankle fracture, he'd have been weight bearing is tolerated. I've seen him back at six weeks for his first visit. That would be the standard. And and I wouldn't have gotten an x-ray at six weeks. That would be just to make sure he's moving along. If he had a lot of pain, that would be different. But you know, assuming that his pain was what it actually was, you know, that we know, right? That it wasn't high, I would I would have just walked him. Yeah. All right. S sign me up. <laughs> Friend. <laughs> Steve's in too. He doesn't want to be, but he's in. No, there. no, I'm in. Yeah, I think, I think that's the study. That, you're right. That's the study because what's used as the gold standard is 
stress exam, right? So everybody says that uh, I like, you know, the, the way you decide if you were correct on deciding if something was unstable or not, you take them to the OR, you do a stress x-ray, it shows they're unstable. Therefore, my supposition that sec complete sacral fractures are unstable must be right, you know? So, um, and that may not be the gold standard. You know, it may be that they don't heal in that position. You know, this person may heal in a very nice position. And uh, um, so we don't know the answer to that. All right, stay tuned for a future classic paper. Right. Anybody who's interested, email me, no joke. Everybody's invited. All right, thanks everybody. All right, good session, good to see everybody. Thank you guys. Yeah, thank you guys, thanks a lot. Great job guys. Cheers. Yeah, thanks. Um, so a couple last slides uh, just to go through. So uh, these are the dates for the upcoming journal club sessions. So we're gonna, March will be calcaneous. Then <clears throat> so we're gonna focus on clavicle fractures and distal femur fractures and the distal humerus fractures in June. Uh, you'll certainly get updated emails about these. Next slide, Adam. Um, there will be a recording um, and uh, it will be available on uh, YouTube. And we're also working on, a, um, working on setting up a podcast uh, for these journal club um, sessions as well. And so uh, take home messages, incomplete lateral compression sacral fractures associated with ipsilateral rami fractures are unlikely to displace while complete sacral fracture with bilateral rami fractures uh, displaced at a higher rate. Immediate weight bearing is safe and acceptable for minimally displaced lateral compression sacral fractures. And uh, an internal anterior fixator is a technique for treatment of unstable pelvic ring injuries combined with posterior fixation if indicated. <laughs>